Okay, so today we're going to continue through uh, the book of Acts, and we're going to begin today talking about surprising salvations, surprising salvations from Acts chapter 8. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll keep going here this morning. Uh, King Jesus, uh, Father, Lord, we, we lift our hearts up to you this morning, Lord. We have, we have sung your praise, Lord, um, and now we uh, desire to come uh, to you, God, to, to, to hear from you, Lord. We, we need a word from you this morning, Lord. We want to be your holy, faithful, and redeemed people, Lord, and we know that you have something you want to say to us. And so, God, I just pray for every individual that you have brought here this morning, Lord. There are no accidents, Lord, and so I just pray that you would open our hearts and minds and ears now, that you would give us moldable, pliable hearts, God, to be shaped by your Holy Spirit, God, so that we can be the church that you've called us to be uh, here in Dodge County in 2023, Lord. Faithful, holy, true, obedient, Lord. I'm seeing people uh, experience life transformation uh, and forgiveness of sins through uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us now. God, as we look to you, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, I do invite you to turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, it will help you a lot if you could follow along with me as we read that. Um, if you don't, don't have a Bible on hand at the moment, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. So uh, last week, uh, we talked about how the blood of the first Christian martyr named Stephen became the seed of the church, and how the ensuing persecution, all right, the, uh, where they uh, persecuted Christians, arresting them from house to house and so on, it forced them to scatter out of Jerusalem in a way that they had not yet done. And, and as they scattered, they shared the gospel. And we were introduced to another of the seven um, in the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, Stephen was one of the seven, and another man uh, who was one of the seven a kind of proto-deacons as we typically think of them, uh, was a man named Philip, okay? And as he was kind of booted out of Jerusalem because of the increased persecution at that time, he went and proclaimed Christ in, in uh, villages of Samaria. And then later he was led by the Spirit south um, to proclaim Christ to an Ethiopian eunuch. And what we're going to see today is kind of a litany of surprising salvations. That, uh, and what we're going to see is that no one is beyond the reach of the saving grace of God. That's what we're going to talk about today as we talk about surprising salvations from Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. If you're able and willing, let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. This is what it says. It says, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing, great, seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them. 
that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, because they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands, lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken... The word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, toward the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said to me, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they, went, they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up, out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The Word of God. You may be seated. All right, so we're talking about surprising salvations today, and we're going to see this in three ways. Number one, salvation for Samaritans. Salvation for Samaritans. Number two, salvation for Simon. Salvation for Simon. And number three, salvation for the superintendent. Salvation for the superintendent. Okay, so we're starting here with salvation for the Samaritans, all right? So as I just, I keep reminding you that kind of the, one of the most important verses in the book of Acts is Acts 1-8, right, where Jesus said some of his final words was that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so, up until this point, right, the gospel has been proclaimed in Jerusalem and has taken the city by storm in many ways to the point that persecution has arisen. And now, because of the persecution from Stephen, many Christians were scattered, including Philip, who went and proclaimed in the cities of Samaria, just as Jesus said would happen. It would go from Jerusalem, then, then to Judea and all Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So just a reminder about Samaritans, right? Samaritans were half-breed Jews, as it were, okay? And uh, they were the kind of the descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel 
who, was corrupt, who corrupted the faith in idolatry, if you remember from the Old Testament, and they were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And the Assyrians resettled foreigners into the northern kingdom of Israel, which, whose capital was Samaria. And these foreigners mixed with the Jews, and they kind of created this, this uh, pseudo-Jewish uh, people called the Samaritans, all right, who had mixed Jewish an- ancestry, but who did believe the first five books of our Bibles called the Torah, all right? Uh, even Jesus, right? If you remember uh, in that famous encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, all right, uh, he, he ministered among the Samaritans. Nevertheless, he was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. The Messiah had to be a Jewish Messiah, and Jesus himself had to correct that woman's erroneous belief. Uh, if you remember, Jesus told that woman, the Samaritan woman, that salvation is from the Jews, Okay, and so uh, the the Samaritans did have this messianic figure that they were looking for, uh, and that they were anticipating. But Jesus was saying that that it was He, a Jewish man, a Jewish Savior, and so uh, we can't miss the magnitude really of what's happening here. It, it, it would be easy to miss because we're so familiar, perhaps, with the New Testament. But this would be the first time, really, that salvation. Pretty much in the history of the Bible, all right, since Abraham was born and he became the Jewish nation, right? This would be the first time in history that salvation is extending to people outside the Jewish nation. The first time, okay? We can't miss the magnitude of what's happening. Now, Samaritans naturally are kind of that next step in, in, this, in the gospel spreading outside of the Jewish nation because they, were, uh, they had a Jewish heritage, Okay, and they did affirm the the first five books of the Bible. But nevertheless, to say that a Samaritan could be saved apart from converting, full-on converting to Judaism would have been unbelievably scandalous to a Jew. All right? And, I mean, just for example, the the fact that Jesus used a Samaritan as a good guy in one of his parables, right, the good Samaritan, just for the shock factor of it among his Jewish audience, tells you how... Uh, how bad the relationship was between the Samaritans and the Jews. Okay, but nevertheless, Jesus told his followers that they would go to Samaria and that they would preach Christ and make disciples among the Samaritans. Right? And so this is a lesson that we'll see more and more through the book of Acts, that God's plan of salvation was a plan that was centered around the Jews, but it was always meant to extend beyond the Jews and to bring the saving knowledge of God to the whole world. And it's a reminder that Jesus came to unite his people under one banner, the banner of the name of Jesus, right? That's how, that's how we can have, um, supposedly at least, over a billion followers of Jesus on planet Earth at this moment. And how you can have people who speak different languages, who come from different cultures, who in many ways are as different as you could possibly imagine, and yet... And yeah, I, I guarantee if you've never experienced it, I hope one day you do, you could go to a foreign land and meet a believer and, and experience an immediate connection with them, even though you may have nothing else in common. Why? Because you both belong to Jesus. Because you both share, you both come under the blood of Jesus Christ, which is thicker than even earthly, the blood of earthly family. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And so in Jesus, Jesus can unite people who are different. And are, in Jesus, our culture 
our preferences, our nationalities, past animosities, all these things become relativized in their importance as we unite and become a, a new tribe, if you will. A big problem today, if you haven't realized it, is tribalism. We, we square away into our little tribes, and every tribe has that other tribe over there, those, those untouchables, those bad guys over there. But Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to become part of a new tribe, the, 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 the tribe, the family of God, where our differences infinitely pale in comparison to the shared salvation and eternity we have through our Jewish king. And so if you think sal- salvation for the Samaritans is amazing, wait till it gets to me and you. <laughs> so number one, salvation to, for Samaritans. Number two, salvation for Simon. Salvation for Simon. So we read the story about Simon, and it's an incredibly surprising salvation because it says there that not only was Simon a Samaritan, Simon was also a magician of some sort, right? So now, biblically speaking, magic and the occult are very real things, okay? And uh, uh, biblically speaking, they are associated with demonic activity, all right? Uh, Magic and the occult points to a reliance on some kind of supernatural power besides God, and so, it, it's based, and so it's idolatry, it's rebellion against him. The first magicians that we find in Scripture are the Egyptian magicians who oppose Moses uh, and the powers that Moses is working with the staff that God gave him. But you remember that it doesn't take much effort for God to show the Egyptian magicians that they are outmatched by the power of God. But still, Simon is a magician, he's a Samaritan magician, but Simon's problem, as it's, as it's rendered here in, in the book of Acts by Luke, is it's less opposition to the power of God as it is vanity and pride. Because he has the ability to do these amazing things, uh, and he has astounded Samaritan, the Samaritans in this area for so long that he is, apparently is something of a household name among uh, the people there. Have you seen Simon? Have you seen what he could do? He's so amazing, all right? And he, he loved that. Everybody paid attention to him because uh, he, they gave heed to him as somebody who was great. In fact, there, that, the, the statement that it makes uh, basically is saying that he had this title of great one, right? Uh, that he, his title was great one, and he was thought to have the power of God himself. But what is remarkable about Simon is that when Philip shows up and starts working these miracles and working these signs, right, and all these amazing things, right, it is it, 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 the Simon who amazed others is now amazed himself. Because what? Because he sees that Philip is doing things that he can't touch, right, that the power of the Holy Spirit is greater than the power of whatever magic he was doing. And so... Uh, as multitudes of the Samaritans are, are seeing these signs and hearing the gospel through Philip and believing in, in Jesus and being saved, so Simon also believes and is baptized along with the rest. And so now, at this time, the word of Philip's ministry among the Samaritans has spread back to Jerusalem, and the apostles uh, hear about it, and they come to, to lay hands on the Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so when we get to this part in the narrative, um, it's, it's important that we just hit the pause button and have a little theological reflection, all right, because uh, this account raises this question, right? Because generally speaking, we understand that we receive the Holy Spirit 
when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we turn from our sins and believe in Jesus Christ. But in this account with the Samaritans, it says that their reception of the Holy Spirit was delayed until the apostles came from Jerusalem to lay hands on them, right? And so, what, 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 so what's happening, right? Do we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe, or does somebody special, like a pastor or a priest or the Pope, have to come and lay hands on you to receive the Holy Spirit? How does that work? Well, this is a good uh, opportunity to learn um, what the difference between what is descriptive in a narrative versus what is prescriptive in a narrative, right? And what I mean by that is when you read a narrative like a story, right, this, uh, when you read a story, most of the time the story doesn't, the story tells you what happens, but doesn't tell you the implications of that, right? In other words, okay, it happened then. Is Luke merely describing what happened at that time, or is he prescribing what should happen for all time, right? That's a question that we as the reader have to figure out, right? Just because he describes something doesn't mean that he's prescribing something. The fact that Jacob had four wives, I don't think means that we should all go out and marry four women, all right? Just because it happened doesn't mean it's prescriptive for all times and all places. So what is happening here in the book of Acts? Well, I would argue that the reason there's a delay in the reception of them receiving the Holy Spirit is because, and this will happen again in the book of Acts, is because salvation uh, is for the first time, uh, the salvation of the Samaritans is marking a unique and paradigm-shifting event in redemptive history. For the first time, as I said, salvation is extending beyond the Jewish nation in a way that really even though Jesus told them it was going to happen, nobody was really prepared for it. In fact, the great controversy in the book of Acts, as we'll see, and if you read carefully through Paul's letters, the great, great controversy is how can people be saved through Jesus without also becoming Jewish? Because the Jewish impulse was, well, you got to become a Jew and believe in Jesus. Well, if that's true, uh, then, you know, we can throw all our bacon out the, out the window, all right? But... But is that true? And, and if, of course, if you read the book of Acts and you read Paul, especially in Romans and Galatians, you know, he, he is arguing fiercely that you can't add to the gospel. It's not Judaism plus Jesus that saves. It's Jesus alone that saves. Okay? Um, but it's important here. And so I just think that this is a unique period in which God designed that he wanted the apostles themselves to have a part in the, uh, the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. Because if the apostles, who were well known to be the Christ-appointed leaders of the church, if the apostles had a hand in it, nobody could come back later and say, well, the Samaritans just made that up and they really got to become Jews, right? No, this, it was the, the apostles themselves who laid hands on them, and it was the apostles themselves who uh, apparently, they, re- they, apparently they par- probably started speaking in tongues. In other words, they... They had the same signs of receiving the Holy Spirit that the Jews did on the day of Pentecost. So all that together means nobody could dispute that God was doing something new, right? It was indisputable. Salvation was, in fact, going to the Samaritans, which changes everything because now it means that salvation is not just confined to Judaism, but it comes through Christ and Christ alone, okay? So... So, so now where does Simon fit in all of this? Well, Simon, uh, when he saw that the Holy Spirit was given by the laying on of the hands, uh, I believe what's happening is this old kind of vain pride rose up on his heart, right? Here's this, 
here's this new amazing thing that these guys are doing, and, and, and I want to do that too. I want the ability to do that too. And so this old vain pride kind of rises up, and he actually offers to pay the apostles money for this ability to lay hands on people for them to receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, it is from this biblical account that we get the English word simony, which means the buying or selling of an ecclesiastical office. So it's pretty well known throughout church history that um, uh, there's been numerous accounts of men paying uh, hefty sums to get lucrative or prestigious church offices. All right, And, and that's called simony, which we get from this account. But unsurprisingly, all right, this doesn't fly with Peter, who warns him that unless he repents of his pride, he would perish along with his money. Why? Because you can't buy a gift. You can't, in other words, it's a gift from God. You can't buy gifts from God, all right? Or then it wouldn't be a gift, right? And, and nor can you monetize what is the gift of God or use it for personal aggrandizement. I, I just think Simon wanted this ability because he wanted to keep being great. He wanted people to keep thinking that he was amazing, all right, that he was the great power of God called great, all right? But you can't buy that from God, you can't, you, and you can't attempt to use spiritual power or authority for personal gain. That is sin, and that's what we learn from Simon. And so how does Simon uh, respond to Peter's rebuke? Well, he basically cowers in fear, and he kind of begs Peter, pray for me uh, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So, so what are we to make of this? What are we to make of Simon? Well, it's really debated, and um, I kind of changed my mind, honestly. Uh, but I, I, think, I think that Simon was actually saved. I, th- I think he was actually saved. I think that he really believed that he had this vain pride that he uh, really indulged most of his life, okay, and that uh, so he thought that he could gain this power, but then when he's rebuked by Peter, he, he repents. He's, he's, he's sorry. He's grieved at what he has done, right? And so, in other words, the lesson, one of the lessons from Simon that I think we can all relate to is the reality that the old man dies hard. <laughs> the old man dies hard, right? If you spent your whole life amazing people and very proud of the fact that you were a household name, well, guess what? Just because you get saved, that doesn't mean it just immediately vanishes, all right? The old man dies hard, all right? Old habits die hard. But when he was rebuked, he turned in the fear of God, asking to be spared condemnation for this sin. Okay, so the old man dies hard, and tied in with that is that sanctification is a process. Sanctification is a process. I always remind people of this, and it's especially important, I think, for relatively new believers, because it would be tempting to think that, hey, if I get saved, if I get saved, that means, boom, I'm, I'm, done, bat, I'm done struggling with sin. But, that, but it's just, unfortunately, that's just not how it works, right? But this is what I tell people. The difference between a saved person and a lost person isn't that you don't struggle with sin or, or, or isn't that you don't have temptation, you face temptation. I mean, the, the truth is, is that a lost person, it, before we're saved, guess what? You don't battle sin. You don't battle sin, and what I mean by that is you don't battle it because you don't fight it. You just give in to it. When you actually have a fight with sin, that's actually evidence not that you're lost, but that you're saved. Because before you became saved, you didn't care whether you sinned or not. You just did what you wanted to do. But now that you are saved and now that you have this impulse 
to fight that sin, to oppose that sin, that's actually, so the fact that there is an internal battle isn't a sign that you're not saved. It's probably a sign that you are. Because now for the first time, you're actually trying to stop sinning, which is really hard to do. But it's the Holy Spirit that empowers that. It's the Holy Spirit that, that works that. And, and it means that it's a process, right? Occasionally, when someone gets saved, they might have a certain struggle that just God immediately delivers them from. That happens from time to time. But probably for most of us, the things that we struggled with, especially before we uh, got saved, are the things that we'll struggle with after we got saved. The difference is that we're now actually fighting them by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that sanctification is a process. It's a process. I mean, it, it takes time, right, to grow in holiness, and God works with us uh, to take us step by step because there's a bunch of different layers of sin, right? There's the obvious sins, and God usually works on those first, all right? But then the, the much harder sins to get rid of are the less obvious sins, the sins of pride, the sins of vanity, the sins of selfishness and self-sufficiency, right? Those dwell under the surface. They're a lot easier to mask in a church service, all right? And they're a lot harder to get rid of, all right? But look, if God showed you all the problems you had immediately when you got saved, you just have a heart attack on the spot, all right? So he's patient with you, all right? He takes his time cleaning you up. It's a process, all right? That's how it works. Sanctification is a process. Simon was this magician and this occultist, but he saw that God's power was greater than his, and he turned to the Lord, okay? And so the final lesson I think we can learn from that is that even the people whom you least expect can be smote by the saving grace of God, all right? God saved the Samaritan magician and occultist, right? So what's the point? The point is don't give up. Don't give up. And don't look at somebody, don't never look at somebody and say, there's no way God can save him. <laughs> somebody probably one day looked at you and said, there's no way God can save him. Or me, right? That's how it works, right? That's the whole point. That's the whole point. But hey, nobody's beyond the saving reach of God. Nobody. So keep praying and don't give up. So number one, salvation for Samaritans. Number two, salvation for Simon. And number three, salvation for the superintendent. Superintendent. And by superintendent, I, of course, mean the Ethiopian official, but I'm Baptist, and if it's not alliteration, it's not a sermon. Amen? All right. So uh, in this account of the, outpour so, uh, the outpouring of the Spirit upon the Samaritans, all right, Simon the magician gets saved, and Philip's doing all this, all right? Um, and so we see an important por portrait being painted by Luke here of the gospel beginning to extend beyond the nation of Israel in surprising ways. And we see this again in the account of the Ethiopian eunuch. And so Philip, uh, very interestingly, it says that the angel of the Lord told him to go down to the road that goes from uh, Jerusalem down to Gaza, and he would meet somebody there. Okay, so he goes, and uh, he goes to this road, and he sees this... Um, Ethiopian a eunuch, this Ethiopian official who's in his chariot, he had gone up to Jerusalem to worship, and apparently he had bought a, a scroll of the, the prophet Isaiah, okay? And then as he sees this chariot, it says, it says again there that the Spirit then told Philip to go up to the chariot and talk to this man. And so the first thing that I want us to see here is that God, so notice here in this account, God wanted 
this Ethiopian man to hear about Jesus. God wanted this Ethiopian man to hear about Jesus. And then the second thing is this. God wanted Philip to be the one to tell him. Okay? So two things. God wanted this Ethiopian man to hear about Jesus. And then number two, God wanted Philip to be the one to tell him. And so what's the point? The point is, is that God did all this for what? For the salvation of one individual person. One individual person. What does it mean? It means God cares about the individual, and he divinely ordains appointments to share Christ. That's it, right? God orchestrated all this. God spoke directly to Philip, and when he saw the chariot, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, you need to go over to that chariot. And when he walked over to that chariot, lo and behold, what, is, what just happens to be happening is the man happens to be reading from Isaiah, okay? And uh, Philip gets to tell him about Jesus. And so what does it mean? It means God, every day of our life, we can just assume that God has a divine appointment for us, that God cares about the individual, that just like God told Philip to say, hey, you need to walk up and talk to that person. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to prompt us. And, and you never know, you never know, you never know what you're going to encounter. And sometimes, and sometimes they may not believe. Sometimes God just wanted you to plant a seed. But sometimes they will. All right? But the point is, is that uh, our job is not knowing how they're going to respond. Our job is to tell people what God has done for them, knowing that God is going to use it. So Philip obeys the Lord. He obeys the Holy Spirit. He walks up to this chariot, and he finds this Ethiopian eunuch um, who has gone up to worship in Jerusalem. And so now there's a question about exactly what it means that this man is a eunuch. Because strictly speaking, a eunuch is a castrated man, okay? He's 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 castrated man. Now, it was quite common, very common, in fact, for eunuchs to work in royal courts. If you remember from the book of Esther, right, Esther was attended by eunuchs. So, in this sense, castrated males. Now, of course, it was very common for eunuchs to work in the royal courts, especially if they were working closely with women for obvious reasons, okay? But it was common enough, apparently, that uh, eunuch might refer not just to, strictly speaking, a literal eunuch, but a royal servant in general. However, if this man was a literal eunuch, it would be a profound statement of the grace of God and how Jesus in the new covenant is extending salvation beyond strict adherence to the Jewish law. And the reason for this is because, interestingly, the Old Testament law actually forbade eunuchs from being part of God's covenant people. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, it says, and if you've never read this verse, I'm sure it's not your favorite verse, but no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Let no one tell you the Bible is boring, okay? Now, for, so this was part of God's law. Now, that seems kind of, you know, kind of crude or strange or weird or maybe even unfair, okay? But, and that's another sermon for another day. But the point is, is that to be a eunuch for a Jewish person would have been basically a borderline curse, Right? Because if you've read the Old Testament before, right, uh, uh, the way your family and your name was carried on was through your bloodline, right? 
And so one of the curses of the Old Testament would be that your offspring would be cut off and no one would remember your name, right? So to, to not be able to have children in the Old Testament was basically considered to be cursed because you would basically vanish from history. You would not have your name, your name would be forgotten. It would not be remembered, all right? But interestingly, in the same book that that eunuch was reading in, in the book of Isaiah, a few chapters later, which he probably read a little bit later after he talked to Philip in Isaiah 56, the prophet Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah 56, 3. He said, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree, meaning I can't have children. All right? For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps my Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You'll remember, I mean, so what is this, what is, uh, this man, he's reading this scroll from Isaiah, all right, he is a eunuch and a foreigner, and he's about to read in the book of Isaiah about how God will save eunuchs and foreigners and give them a heritage better than sons and daughters. How? Through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, right? Isaiah foretold of the day of Christ. Remember, Jesus cited this, this same passage, right, when he cleansed the temple, right? Because the, that, the, the te- they had the court of the Gentiles that was supposed to be for the worshiping of foreigners, the Jews had made into a marketplace where they were greedy and, and, and stealing people. And he turned over tables and said, my house, God said my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, and you've made it a den of robbers. And so Jesus quoted this passage, all right? And so Isaiah foretold this day that what? That even if we can't have biological children, we can have spiritual ones, right? Even if we can't have biological children, we can have spiritual ones. We, uh, as we share Christ with others and bring more children into the family of God, which is why you don't have to be married and you don't have to have children to live a completely fulfilled life because Jesus Christ the greatest person who ever lived, who lived the most fulfilled, meaningful life that was ever lived, died unmarried and childless. But it is through him that heaven will be full. Even though he never had a child. Because in the new covenant, it's different. All right? It's different. Things are changing. God has changed. God is now welcoming the the foreigner and the eunuch. So when Philip approaches the chariot and he hears this official reading from Isaiah chapter 53, which Brother Ron read earlier, he, he, he reads that passage and Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he's like, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And so a, a simple point we can draw from that is we all need guidance in the Lord in Scripture, 
We all need guidance in the Lord and Scripture. He needed to, he, he, he was reading it, but he didn't grasp it. He didn't know what the full meaning was, what the full content was. And you can't really blame him, right? Because lots of the Old Testament was very mysterious until Christ came and fulfilled the Old Testament and starts making clear about how all the dots connect and all the pieces fit together. But in Christ, it all makes sense, right? And, and let me read it again. Isaiah 56, uh, verse, uh, 53, verses 5 and 6. He says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, if you can't preach the gospel from that passage, I'm sorry, but there's just no hope for you. Okay, there's hope for you, but still. All right, if you can't preach the gospel from that, Jesus was what? He was pierced for our transgressions. That's the gospel. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's the gospel. All we like sheep have gone astray. You, me, the Ethiopian eunuch, we have all gone astray. There's no exceptions. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the kicker. But the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. In other words, Jesus stepped in our place. He took our sin. He was punished with the punishment that we deserve. He took it for us. He stepped in our place so that we might be forgiven. Right? That is the gospel that saved the eunuch. Yes, he was a foreigner. Yes, he was a eunuch. Yes, there was a culture gap. Yes, he lived far away. But you know what? God ordained this whole circumstance and sent Philip there to save that one man. And you know what that man did when he heard the gospel? He said, look, there's water. You stop this chariot right now. I'm following Jesus. I'm following Jesus. So as we close this morning and we talk about surprising salvations for, the Simon, for Samaritans, for Simons, for the superintendent, I don't know about you, but I think all of us can say in some sense that the salvation that surprised me the most was my own. I love my sin, but Jesus showed me that he was better. And maybe there's somebody in here today, and maybe, maybe you're like this Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe, maybe you've, you've heard about Jesus here or there, but it's like reading it on a page, but you, you, you haven't, it never quite clicked like what this means. But maybe today for the first time, God is helping you see, man, he died for me. For me, so that I could escape the penalty of my sin. We can fill this bad boy up real quick <laughs> when you get saved and follow Jesus. There's nothing like it. Surprising salvation by Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, thank you for today. Thank you for the thousand divine appointments, Lord, that preceded my salvation, for the thousand divine appointments that preceded our salvation, God, in this room, Lord, you, 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 you wove all these threads 
in ways that we can't even comprehend so that somewhere along the way, somebody told us about Jesus. And Lord, now maybe that day is, is, is today, Lord. Maybe somebody came today and they didn't expect to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ today, but maybe that's what's happening right now. And God, I pray that they would receive it, would embrace it, would trust you, God, with all that they are. And God, I pray that we would take heed of Philip's um, example this morning, Lord. Um, as we go out about in our day, in our work, God, at the store, God, I'm the chief of sinners here, God. It's just so easy to just be caught up in what, what we're doing, Lord, that we just miss the people, God, that are around us. And, and Lord, maybe your spirit has been prompting us and we just, we just haven't been listening. But God, I just pray that even this week, God, you would give us that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit like Philip. That if you say, like you told Philip to walk up to that chariot, Lord, I pray that as your spirit prompts us to say, hey, I want you to go talk to this person. God, I pray that we would just, we would listen to that, God, and, and heed and just be amazed, Lord, that maybe you're already working just like you were with that eunuch in ways that we don't, we, we have yet to see. God, we want other people to know, like, the, like that eunuch had, Lord, where it says that he went away rejoicing. God, we want other people to know the joy that's found only in you. And so, God, we lay ourselves down to you in faith and surrender, and we thank you for taking our sins upon yourself, that we might be forgiven and to have eternal life. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.